and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Harry, Harry Layla came to Hong Kong from Guangzhou at the age of seven in 1929. He would become one of Hong Kong's biggest businessmen with an empire in property and hotels. He was also a major philanthropist. He and his wife Padma would go on every business trip together. Writer and historian Vodine England has written a biography of Harry Harry Layla, in part using his own memoirs. In the next two programmes, I talk with Vodine and Harry Harry Layla's son, Aaron, about the life of the founder of the Harry Layla Group. And aptly, we're sitting in the Harry, a hotel recently built by Aaron in Wan Chai. Well, the hotel that we're sitting in is called The Harry, sort of testament to my father starting the company, opening his first hotel in probably as difficult, if not more of a difficult time, than we're sitting here today. We're sitting here in the throes of 24 months of social protest and pandemic, and my father opened a hotel, decided to actually reinvest in Hong Kong right after the 1967 riots, and whilst people were fleeing away from Hong Kong, he was investing, and he decided to buy a plot of land to build the Holiday and Golden Mile, his first flagship hotel. And we're sitting here in the Harry, which sits in Wan Chai, very similar situation, very difficult situation in Hong Kong, bought this property, bought actually two residential buildings, brought them down with the intention to build the Harry Hong Kong. We have the first one in London. This is the hotel coming home. And what would your dad think of it? Well, unfortunately, he passed away just before we opened the Harry in London, but he knew about the plans then and uh, he was very excited about it. When I spoke to him in 2011 uh, about starting our own brand, and at that time I didn't have the name of our brand, I, I didn't know it was going to be called the Harry. He was very excited about starting our own brand. We'd been in hotels for 45 years and all of them managed by third parties. I decided it's time for us to do it ourselves. And at that time, he was incredibly excited. Had he known that the, the hotel was going to be called The Harry, which he did in his, his last few uh, months, I think he would have been doubly excited. So we're sitting here in the Harry, quite suitable, in Lockhart Road in Wan Chai. And we're going to be talking about the book Harry, Harry Layla, Made in Hong Kong, which has been written by Vodine England, who's also with us. Now, with writing a book and putting a book together about your dad's life, he already had a, a memoir that you could work off. He did. He'd been writing his memoirs for many, many years, actually. Essentially, when he became a leader, you know, he always wrote a diary. So he wrote a diary every single day. We didn't get our hands on all of those diaries. We couldn't find all of them. We did find some of them. I mean, dated back from the 60s and 70s. And what was his handwriting like? Uh, his handwriting, so he didn't go to school. He stopped his schooling when he was seven years old through occupations in Hong Kong, world wars, uh, just lack of money. And so therefore he didn't have the opportunity to, to go to school. So he taught himself how to read and write himself. And his, his handwriting was incredibly legible for somebody who probably started off writing Cindy, the Cindy script, as opposed to the English script. Seven years old. Seven years old. Yes. So where do you think he, it was he, I mean, later in life? Was it, I mean, did that stop him reading did, or did he embrace it? Actually, he embraced it thoroughly. I mean, he always said that his greatest pleasure in, in life, obviously, besides uh, the family and, and what have you, was, was reading himself. He, he was self-taught. He there, there were certain books that he always referred to. One was The Count of Monte Cristo. The other one was The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. I've read both of them. You know, there's, there's certain ones I like more than, than others, but he was very inspired by, by reading and writing and teaching himself. He spoke Cantonese like a local, but he was unable to read or write Chinese. Interesting. Yes, yes, because it would have been so leaving school or, as you say, having his education, let's say, stopped. 
at, at age seven and then continuing on to be who he was. That's quite extraordinary. Now, if you can introduce yourself. So you are one of six children of Harry, Harry, Layla? I am one of six children. I'm, I'm the youngest, uh, sort of the, for one reason or another, the only one in, in the business. My siblings did not want to be in the business. And yes, I'm the only one who lives in Hong Kong, actually. Now, you've moved over to Hong Kong side with the Harry Hotel. Now, your father was all about Kowloon to a large extent with the Holiday Inn, Golden Mile. Well, I think at that time, Kowloon was of utmost importance. There was Hong Kong Island that was relatively tiny. All, all the trade came through Kowloon. I mean, if you look at all the, the older hotels, the Peninsula was there, the Intercontinental was there, the Sheraton were there, the older hotels, the Hyatt, the original Hyatt was there. We were right opposite the Hyatt, diagonally across from the Peninsula, down the road from the Sheraton. All the trade came through Kowloon. And it was only later that Hong Kong Island became much more of a finance center. You know, my father was all about Hong Kong as a whole, not just about Kowloon, I would say. What was he like? Well, my father and I got on very well. We used to play tennis three times a week in the mornings. We uh, spoke about anything. He listened to everybody a lot. He sat and he listened and he listened. And only then would he give his, his opinion. He would never shut anybody down. He was not concerned about people making mistakes. He readily admitted to, to everybody. He made a lot of mistakes in his life. And I hope it's been portrayed in this, in this book that people just don't do everything right in their life. And he admitted readily that there are a lot of things that he could have done better, but all of those mistakes and successes put him where he was in his life. Yes, because as we'll be hearing, I mean, he took some risks and had a, a tremendous self-belief. And in fact, voting where she starts Harry, Harry Layla's life, you actually start that with enormous risk-taking, or how I regard it or at the time. Maybe that was just fantastic business acumen, but Harry, Harry Layla is investing big time at the time of the 1967 riots. Yeah, I think part of that is simply that his entire life was in Hong Kong at that time, and I don't think he had any notion of anywhere else to go or anything else to do. But more importantly, Hong Kong had already been the making of him, I think, by then, from already the 30s and during the war as a very young boy, and then trading out of a suitcase on the street in front of the barracks in Kowloon, and gradually getting into the point where he could be part of a tailoring business with his brothers, and that expanded and became an international business through mail order and stores all over the place and gradually the supply was coming from all over the world and the fashions were being created and being sent all over the world. So this whole vision of Hong Kong as the base of something far larger than itself I think was very important to him. Secondly, I think what was important at that time of that huge upheaval in 1967, that was when trouble was flowing over the border from China to such an extent that you literally had little red book-waving carters going down Nathan Road right in front of the place where he was planning to build a hotel. And yet he stuck to his idea that still Hong Kong was Hong Kong, that it was worth believing in, that if China really wanted to take over Hong Kong, they would just walk in. They wouldn't send the carters ahead. They would just do it. All it would take would be a phone call he wrote so they're not doing that therefore they don't want to take over completely right now therefore there is a chance here to carry on but the larger risk in a way that he took was beyond all this stuff about geopolitics 
regarding his own family. He was the only one of his brothers who had the determination and, in fact, I would say the vision at that time to say, you know, we're not just going to stay as tailors. We're not just going to be another Cindy family doing clothes, you know, forever. That if we're going to break out of that, we have to take steps into a whole new line of business, which is property and which is hotels. Now, none of his brothers agreed with him. The only person who stuck by him and always has and still does is his adorable wife, Aaron's mum. And she believed in the same idea as he did and said, go for it. And she stuck with him through all the ups this and downs. Padma. Yeah. yeah, this is Padma. She stuck with him all the way through the ups and downs of building this hotel. I mean, the riots were only just the beginning. There were huge hassles along the way that came and developed and made it an incredibly difficult thing. Like... Like the fact that the foundations were completely flooded in a typhoon and had to be completely redone from the scratch and the supplies for that had been due to arrive on a ship which never did and then it took ages and there were huge delays. There were massive problems with the financing, getting loans from various people. There was a mad dash to Hong Kong Bank, Michael Sandberg at one point to get the financing that was just going to save him from having to get stuck into a deal that would relinquish his own control of the project. I mean, Harry went through thick and thin to get that hotel up and he believed in it absolutely he believed first in Hong Kong and he believed in his idea of a hotel and he believed that that was the way to give the family a future in your book it's interesting to see that you know at the time as you say there's there's riots going on there's a, there's a very unstable situation in Hong mm. Kong and uh, yet he's talking about two ballrooms Ballrooms are very important in a hotel, and I think what Harry also had was an ability to focus. So once he had decided on something, I mean, it sort of almost didn't matter what was happening on the street outside. Yeah. He'd decided he was going to build a nice hotel, so therefore he was going to build a nice hotel, and the rest could, in a way, go jump. So it was important, and then there was this huge pile of rock that got in the way of a smooth entrance to the ballroom, so in the end they have, there's some steps that go up and over the rocks because it wasn't <laughs> possible to move. So those were the kinds of things that he was busy dealing with. And as I was also very impressed by the fact that this man is basically uneducated in any formal sense. And even the schooling was informal schooling. It was a tutor when the family was still in Guangzhou before it came to Hong Kong. So it was a very unofficial, informal situation. And from that... He taught himself all along the way. And I, the time that I spent in his head in writing this book has now meant that in my normal daily life now, I'm talking about lifelong learning because this is what Harry goes on about all the time. He's constantly seeing every impediment and every difficulty, every challenge as a chance to learn something. And I think that reflects what Aaron was saying about how it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to be misled by somebody so long as you learn from it. And it's this concept of that you're constantly learning. In his late 30s, he decided that his writing of English wasn't good enough. And so he hired a teacher from the nearby Diocese and Boys School to come and give him private lessons mm -hmm. in his very late 30s to teach him how to write better English. Now that also tells me about his humility, yeah. I think. He knew that he, there was a lot he didn't know and he knew that from the beginning. And he knew that he was up against it from early on. I mean, this, this family, when they came from Guangzhou, were in one room in Shamshu Po. There were a lot of them. And so they gradually worked their way out of it because he knew he had to learn every step. 
and he continued to do that, I think, really until the end of his life. He, he saw every new hassle as a chance to learn something, which I suppose is quite a positive approach. Yes. Uh, was he a positive man? Uh, he was incredibly positive, uh, very optimistic, very positive about everything, actually. From when I knew him, he was 49 years old when, when I was born. And I just don't remember one instance of him saying, you know, I think this is going to go downhill. He always said, I think we can turn this around. But if you're a businessman, don't you have to be a bit tough in your decisions with other people? Uh, the, being optimistic doesn't mean you're not tough. Being optimistic also doesn't mean that you're not uh, being realistic. I mean, take, for example, where we are today. I mean, if we're looking at the future of Hong Kong, it's very easy to be pessimistic. It's very easy to say, OK, there are parts of it that will still remain intact. And so, therefore, let's concentrate on those parts. The ups and downs that he went through, a, a lot of people left Hong Kong, uh, would have left Hong Kong, stopped their businesses, sold out, and he never did that. And I guess the proof is in the fact that not having sold anything out, he had succeeded uh, at, at the end of his life. Now, Vodin was mentioning how at one point, um, as a boy, he's, he's actually selling uh, the barracks out of a out of a suitcase. So I was reading here that uh, he was actually selling toothbrushes. So your family comes originally from Guangzhou. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So my paternal grandfather actually was trading between Guangzhou and Hong Kong much before he brought the family over there in uh, 1929, was it, Vodin? And so he brought the family there in 1929, having a big split from his family. So my paternal grandfather, his mother passed away in, in India. In, in those days, Sindh, Karachi, we were just 50 kilometers away from Karachi in a place called Hyderabad, Sindh, was part of India. It hadn't split into Pakistan and India at that time. And he had a big split with his family because his mother passed passed away and he was traveling through India to attend the funeral. They had cremated his mother before he arrived. So he got incredibly upset and decided to split from his family and take half of his mother's name, which was Harry Bai, and half of his father's name, which was Leela Ram. So he took the Harry from Harry Bai and the Leela from Leela Ram and put it together and created the, the name Harry Leela. And that's why actually there's only one family in the world uh, called Harry Leela and, and started, emanated from, from my paternal grand father. So he brought his family in 1929 to Guangzhou and eventually to Hong Kong. And they, they started, you know, with nothing. They they had a good business in, in China. Coming to Hong Kong, they lost everything. So why did he move at that point? The depression in the States was such that a lot of the traders from, from the Sindh was engaged in was in curios and travel items. And tourists would come and buy silks, slippers, curios from shops in Guangzhou or anywhere along the whole sort of shipping trading routes around the world. That's why you've got Cindy's all around the world in the most amazing places. That trade really went into a huge dip because of the Great Depression, the financial ramifications coming out of New York in 1929. And I think in particular, he was hit by a certain bunch of suppliers who didn't pay bills on time. There were people reneging on deals. And he had thought that he would do better in Hong Kong, where he had a brother, and thought that he would go into business with the brother. Unfortunately, by the time he got to Hong Kong, the brother had gone. And all that was left was virtually nothing. There was no office and there was no functioning business anymore. He thought he was going to be joining a functioning trading organization, but it wasn't there by the time he got here. So that's why they ended up starting from scratch. And they literally, I mean, the way Harry tells it in his own words, 
is that he and his older brother George, who's a very important character in Harry's growing up, older brother George is this sort of virtually mystical creature who it just seems so marvellous and wonderful and, and good, but not a businessman. And Harry comes along, son number two, with a very sort of determined business-like kind of mind. So very young George and Harry would be wandering around what is now Ocean Terminal or Star Ferry run there, you know, how are we going to get some money to, to bring back to mum today so we can have some food for dinner? And getting the advice of other people on the street and gradually really Realizing, okay, joining all these crowds selling to tourists isn't the answer. What we should be doing is selling to soldiers in and out of the barracks. And, you know, what do they need? They need toothbrushes and T-shirts and soap and things like that. So that's how it then began, and that's why it began literally on the footpaths outside the British barracks. A very tough start. Mm. And uh, as you say, all in one room in Sham mm. So he's selling toothbrushes at that point. They then would move, I mean, as you say, the Cindy tradition has always been into tailoring. So where were they setting that up? Well, there was just this little thing that came along the way, which was World War Two, And what that meant for people like Harry and George was, again, how do you just keep finding a spot to base yourself safely so that you can still trade whatever's around to be traded? Now, this is, again, to me, it's one of the most beautiful sort of Hong Kong aspects of this story. What absolutely saved them during the war, this very young family, was the, the friendship and support of another very Hong Kong family, which happens to be Portuguese, the Noronha, and there were a couple of sisters there who had a hair salon out the back of the Peninsula Hotel. And they weren't going to be using it during the war because, funnily enough, women didn't really want to beautify themselves for the Japanese during the occupation. So they offered some of the space to Harry and for some reason could trust each other that that was fine and when the sisters wanted it back Harry would of course give that space back I mean to me this is a very Hong Kong thing we're not talking about oh the whole sort of Hong Kong thing of people only wanting to make money and not helping each other no this is so you have a Portuguese family you have a Cindy family and they're both in Hong Kong and they're helping each other out and they're selling goods that are coming and going between Japanese and Chinese and Indians and whoever else is around it's a very mixed and mutually supporting environment, actually. Now, some of those goods were, were just foodstuffs, rice, oil, whatever. And then the boys got this brilliant idea. I, myself, being a fan of Singer sewing machines, they <laughs> <laughs> and I have one of these old ones that they've been talking about renewing. They were being dumped. You know, who was bothered about old sort of lumps of metal at a time when you were bombs and Japanese occupation and whatever? They collected these old machines, they touched them up, they made sure they worked, gave them a bit of repaint and sold them on to Japanese guys who were coming and going on ships by that point and who needed to look after their own uniforms and everything. And that became a really interesting... They, they had actual ideas. It was original. Nobody else was doing it. They were picking up junk and reselling it really well. I think out of that probably came the idea about tailoring. I mean, I'm not sure if that came directly, but... There were other families in the crowd and they were already trading in silks previously. And so this idea of dealing in fabrics and then what more could you make of fabrics. And of course, by the time the British came back and then, of course, U.S. troops moved into Asia in a big way after World War II and they all needed uniforms. It's interesting from the tailoring aspect, there's very much military uniforms at the outset. 
Uh, there were military uniforms at the outset, but what's very interesting is in the caste system in India, to be a tailor is actually amongst the lowest of the caste. In the Sindhi community, we have much less of a caste system because actually we're a much smaller community and, and there's been a mixture of different cultures that have gone through Sindh, coming from the Arabian Sea, coming down from the desert, and so therefore there's a lot of mix of different cultures. So for Sindhis, they're, they're fewer castes, but for the rest of India, uh, to be a tailor is one of the lowest castes. And actually, worse than that is to be a tailor for female clothes. And my father decided after creating uniforms for, for the British and the American armies and having stations in, in shops in Guam and, and other places around Asia, he decided that he wanted to go into female tailoring, Cheng Sams and all the, the Western dresses as well as the Chinese dresses. And that actually catapulted them into a different category. So whereas a lot of the Indian tailors in Hong Kong were supplying silks and supplying fabrics and uh, doing male suits, my father then went into female clothes. And that actually got him into the Chinese community over here. And he then really instituted himself within the Chinese community. And from there he grew, actually. It wasn't within the Sindhi community that he grew. It was opening out to different cultures, which he always tended to do until the rest of his life. I mean, some of his best friends were in America, were in England, were in India, were, were in China, were in Hong Kong. And so he had a wide variety of friends. And I think that's one of the the different things that I found about my father. If you go into the Indian community in Hong Kong, a lot of them still stick within that Indian community, whereas my father had a very diverse bunch of friends, actually. Not only in terms of friendship, but in those days, friends did business together. Mm. Now, he, yes, uh, I mean, in the book, Harry, Harry Layla, Made in Hong Kong, Vodin describes how, yes, he, he's also, not only from a business perspective, but also from a social perspective, he's, he's widening his connections. So he's joining Rotary. He's also joining Freemasons. And that I found uh, an interesting section, like Freemasons, well, you believe in God, but they don't say which God. But uh, he did encounter racism within those business circles. This whole mixture of both racism but also roots of acceptance, I'm now beginning to realize over all these years that it's quite characteristic of Hong Kong. So what appear to be complete contradictions seem to coexist, probably not only here, of course. So that on the one hand, the fact that Harry and his family were of Indian origin was not an impediment to them actually getting ahead and doing well in Hong Kong because they had ideas and they had guts and they worked like hell. And it was the same for all sorts of other families here of all sorts of origins. At the same time, of course, there remained institutional racism of all kinds, not only from the British, of course, but particularly also from certain groups of Chinese. I mean, we all know the sort of attitudes that are quite commonly found. And what's interesting, I think, again, it's this sort of positive approach that you get from someone like Harry. He never complains about racism in his own writing. He never talks about it. I mean, I think there's one reference once when he's joining Rotary and he became president of the, the main Kowloon, the branch of Rotary, within a couple of years, and he said no non-British had ever managed that before. So he was pleased about that. But the fact that he was from a minority and therefore bound to face or expect some sort of discrimination at some point, he was not ever going to let it hold him back. I think it probably gave a certain drive to that generation, and I've seen this in other families, that to make sure that you get ahead no matter what. You see it in different groups of people who are not automatically part of the establishment. They work much harder to enter it 
to, in a way, in some ways, and sometimes actually dominated, but because they're just more determined than the rest. So, which is a natural sort of process you'll see elsewhere. But certainly, there have always been institutions, and this is why I find it difficult to be absolutely black and white, even about things like empire and colonialism, because there are always institutions within those structures that allow for some mixing and getting along. And weirdly enough, the Masons are one of them. I mean, obviously, it's only for men, so there's a serious limit to the mixing allowed. But that business of you needing to believe in a god, but it could be any god, so that before the end of the 19th century in Hong Kong, Freemasonry included leading Parsis, such as Modi, Armenians, such as Chaita, Chinese, such as the Li family that became the Li Haizan conglomerate. I mean, these were all leading Masons. And I have since, in, you know, in this day and age, met people who were leading British Taipans of leading British Hongs who have said to me, oh, yes, we joined the Masons because we, we wanted to meet other people. Interesting. So that's quite a list. What I find interesting with big businessmen like Harry Harry Layla, Paul Chater in an earlier era and many others, is that you can get a little bit blithe about the fact that they, all right, well, we kick off with selling toothbrushes and then we'll move into tailoring and then, oh, yeah, well, why not property and hotels? Is that where does that knowledge base come from? Or we're, we're going to be tradespeople, but big time. And, and I find that you can, because there's so many mm-hmm. in, in Hong Kong that move into a whole variety of trading aspects. Mm. It's like, how do you go from tailoring to property? Well, I always think of this great song by Joan Armour Trading, you know, Opportunity. I mean, I always have that as my sort of theme song for Hong Kong. You know, Opportunity came to my door in the shape of an old friend. Opportunity came to my door when I was down on my love In the shade of an old friend With a plan guaranteed Show me the paper as he walked And it turns out to be slightly verging on not really criminal, but pushing an envelope, shall we say. And I think probably all of us who have had a life in Hong Kong have experienced that. That's why we're here. And there is an ability to jump across from one thing to the next. And I think that's the sort of experience we've had in our time. I think a generation earlier and several generations before then, you basically did whatever you could to get ahead and to survive. And those possibilities were present in different sectors at different times. I mean, as Iran mentioned early on, the, the way in which Kowloon was center for also physical trading, you know, stuff was coming in. It was, it was physical. Once Hong Kong became more of a financial center, which we, of course, now think was forever, but it wasn't. It actually only came up in the 80s. So, you know, that becomes a more sort of ephemeral thing that's happening in people's heads in offices and central. It's not, it's not this gritty stuff that's coming in on the train from China. So there are different phases, and there were, there were phases of industrialization before World War II in Hong Kong. There's this marvelous website, The Industrial History of Hong Kong, <laughs> which tells us a lot about that and how in Hong Kong we were making our own beer. You know, the Ruttenjis is another family. I mean, there's a million examples of things that were being made in Hong Kong with huge enterprise and imagination. And I think... I mean, I could wax lyrical, but probably not for too long, about the role 
actually around the world of what I like to call cosmopolitan port cities. They are places that attract a certain kind of person. I mean, why did the Harry Lailers turn up in Hong Kong? I mean, of course, they had to go somewhere. They were stuck. They needed... So where was a place that might give them opportunity? Oh, well, when you come to a cosmopolitan port century and what you might want to call the long 19th century, you know, any time from the early 1800s up to World War II even, then you are choosing as a certain kind of person, it's kind of a self-selecting mechanism. You're going to a place that is going to sort of pull you in and give you chances. And I think that's why a certain kind of person has come to Hong Kong and it's shaped a certain kind of Hong Kong. My thanks to Aron Harry-Layla and Vodine England talking there on the life of Harry Harry-Layla. Next week, we look at how Harry goes from tailoring into property and his emphasis on education. Aron also tells me about the Harry-Layla mansion, where the members of this multi-generational family live in Kowloon Tong. The biography by Vodine England, Harry Harry-Layla, made in Hong Kong, is available at Kelly and Walsh. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.